Hello, everybody. This is Dr. Martin Kolb, chief editor of the European Respiratory Journal. With me today in this podcast is Professor Chibi Migliori. He's the director of the WHO Collaborating Center for Tuberculosis and Lung Disease in Tradate in Italy. Hello, Chibi. Good afternoon, Martin. Thank you for inviting me. So it's, it's great to have you with us. And the topic of this podcast in March will be in the light of the upcoming World Tuberculosis Day. And as many of the listeners may know, March 24 is the World TB Day endorsed by the WHO and other societies. And it commemorates the day when Dr. Robert Koch in 1882 actually uh, described the first time the cause of tuberculosis, which is the TB bacillus. So the journal is very active in presenting TB research, and uh, Professor Migliori has uh, picked uh, a few papers to discuss today that he thinks are uh, of special importance for tuberculosis. So let me talk to UGB about the first paper, which was published in 2016, Uh, and it was the WHO TB guidelines on multidrug-resistant tuberculosis. What is new there, and what are the implications of this paper? Yes, thank you. This is a real pivotal paper. Um, it was highly cited, and uh, uh, being evidence-based, brought to the attention of uh, public health and clinical uh, staff four main messages. The two important of them are the endorsement of the short arrangement to treat MDR tuberculosis, a 9 to 12 months regimen that proved to, um, to be able to ensure a relapse-free success rate of 87%, almost 90%, with a reduced cost, less than $1,000, so it's much cheaper than the uh, longer standardized regimen. We will discuss this a bit more into details. And then <clears throat> the regrouping of second-line drugs. Before there were five groups, and the new drugs were in group five. Now uh, the groups are uh, renamed uh, group A, fluoroquinolones, hierarchically the most important, effective, well-tolerated. Group B, injectables. Group C, other second-line agents, and linezolid and clofazimine belongs to this um, group. And group D, the add-on agents, which include in subgroup D2, bedaquiline, and in uh, subgroup D3, the carbapenems. The other two issues are new information on um, MDR treatment for children, uh, for the first time based on uh, a very well done um, a systematic review and um, individual data beta analysis, and uh, the indication for partial lung uh, resection surgery. The papers which uh, I want to underline uh, that are freshly published in the European Respiratory Journal are, um, the first of them is very important, is the paper from uh, by Borisov and others, Effectiveness and Safety of Bedaquiline Containing Regimens, a multicenter study. This is the first larger programmatic study uh, involving 428 cases uh, treated in uh, all continents uh, with bedaquiline, We have here Europe, India, South Africa, Latin America, Australia. 
And the, the results of this programmatic uh, study, so Beraculin was used uh, not in clinical trials, but just in a normal environment of a program, ensured a success rate of 77%, which is extremely high considering that uh, those cases were, were very severe, a median of seven resistances, uh, and the mortality was uh, 6%. Interestingly, the SMEA and the culture conversion rate at the end of treatment was more than 90%, excellent. And interestingly, also Africa uh, achieved a 10% lower success rate because mortality was higher, was 24%, very high. Uh, mortality, um, essentially HIV-driven. Um, uh, an important issue here is the risk that bedaculin can uh, create uh, QT prolongation and arrhythmias and unexpected deaths. And uh, only 5.8% of the cases stopped um, the drug for adverse events possibly related to bedaculin. But in reality, 40% of them restarted, so less than 5% had problems. Um, in uh, an interesting editorial by Pontali, he made um, a, a check of the 1,303 cases published treated with bedaculin and checked and realized that bedaculin was stopped for adverse events only in 44 of them, that represents 3.4%, and QT prolongation was the reason for withdrawal of bedaculin in eight cases only, in reality six cases, because two of these eight restarted the drug. So this is less than 1%. And um, in another interesting um, letter by Guglielmetti, long-term outcome and safety of prolonged treatment for MDR-TB, uh, the, the French court was, was presented with three, 33 patients receiving bedaculin longer than the six months recommended by WHO for a median of 361 days, almost one year, and there were no cardiological problems. So the evidence coming from these uh, three papers, there, were, there are others also, but those are in a way particularly relevant, is that uh, the toxicity of bedaculin may be lower than previously expected. Very good, very good. Thank you, uh, GP. So it's been... Uh, one year and a half since these treatment guidelines came out. What has been published after that in that regard? Yes, the, the main issue here is uh, that, of course, this short arrangement is effective in the cases who uh, are eligible. The problem is uh, uh, by which extent uh, this regimen can be prescribed in different countries. And uh, there are different um, papers, the FJ hosted the vast majority of them, which try to evaluate the eligibility in different settings. And I want to mention in particular uh, the letter by Marieke van der Werf from ECDC, European Centers for Disease Control, on the uh, eligibility of the short arrangement, which uh, identified uh, in Europe um, an eligibility of 29.5%, uh, so means one-third of the cases only. And this confirms other findings, uh, from uh, other authors, for example, there is the FASTA for, letter, for Less letter by Soju, where 8% of the cases in Europe and Latin America were eligible. Another European court by TBNET, less than 8% uh, eligibility in Europe. Countries like Pakistan and um, Brazil, 50%. A recent letter by Mexico, from Mexico, from 45 to 50%. So it seems that um, the um, 
possibility of, of using this, uh, this regimen is, is rather limited uh, to about half of the patients in some of the large countries outside Europe and to 30% and less in Europe. And of course, this uh, criteria for exclusion that have been set by the WHO, which are confirmed and sustained resistance to the drugs composing the regimens or previous exposure to them, plus, uh, of course, intolerance, pregnancy, and extraponary disease. In the Van der Werf uh, letter, there are also two findings which uh, deserve to be underlined. One is that uh, a thambutol, the drug susceptibility testing for a thambutol, has to be considered reliable in Europe because of the uh, very good reproducibility, so that it can uh, be considered a criterion for exclusion to the um, prescription of the regimen. And in this direction are going both the European standards for TB care and the ATS, uh, US uh, and North American guidelines under development. And um, the observation that more than 80% of the strains which are resistant to ofloxacin are resistant also to moxifloxacin. So the argument that uh, in case of resistance to old generation fluoroquinolones can be overcome by using a new one does not work in Europe. This is, is, is pretty interesting. So the regime works well, but apparently only in cases which have a more simple, uh, let's say, pattern of resistances. Thank you. So when we talk about resistance to drugs, uh, the articles you just described really tell us how to better deal with uh, drug-resistant uh, tuberculosis, but it doesn't tell us why some are resistant and others not. Everyone thinks about treatment gone wrong or poor compliance that leads to resistances and uh, then the drug-resistant problems. But there is a nice paper that you highlighted to me. It talks about the association between mutations and phenotypic resistance. Can you tell us more on this paper? Yes, th this is a, a real great paper by uh, Paolo Miotto and uh, a large uh, consortium of ex experts um, that uh, defined the standard approach to interpret mutations uh, and made a systematic review of the available literature on genotypic and phenotypic resistance um, in order to identify uh, the mutations determining uh, resistance. They identified 286, almost 300, and they assigned a confidence level to them uh, classified as high, moderate, minimal, indeterminate or no association at all. The problem in simple words is, this, is, is the following. If you identify a gene of resistance, for example, CADGEO, INHA for isoniazid, with a commercial test, the yeah, test second line, which is the probability that this uh, really confers resistance. The point is that we know that this gene exists, but we don't know the constellation of other genes, which might be silent or might um, let's say, determine uh, a mutation conferring metabolical, metabolic changes which might modulate the response of this gene. This was uh, the issue. And um, the results of the paper uh, really are a core guide uh, to clinical decisions and also to develop molecular diagnostics and also to guide uh, for future research. The point is that the paper uh, is written by microbiologists and is, in a way, a little bit technical. So uh, we, we asked Andrea Cabibbe and, and others to write an editorial uh, able to translate a little bit more into practice 
in a simple language uh, for clinicians. And uh, mutation by mutation and drug by drug, the editorial by Kabibe uh, uh, explains what a clinician can do in practice. For example, in the presence of the gene uh, for rifampicin that can be detected by commercial test, the RPOB gene, then we have an accuracy of 94% and a sensitivity of 90.5%. In the presence of the genes coding for isoniazid resistance, like the CAPG, the NHA, and the others, the accuracy is 80.7% and the sensitivity 78.3%. And for pyrazinamid, which is considered um, not reliable, then uh, there is a gene, the PNCA gene, which has a rather good accuracy, almost 78%, although the sensitivity is only 53%. And uh, uh, the editorial really uh, helps with the table to guide to the clinical decision. Now, the future is clearly on a whole genome sequencing, so the future possibility uh, that is already available now uh, to look at the full constellation of genes, uh, of, uh, studying the entire genome, and experts say that in two to three years, we might have a commercial kit allowing to perform this test at a reasonable cost, maybe something around 50 euros. So this will really change the game. Good, excellent. So you notice that there is a lot of good research uh, published in the European Respiratory Journal. And uh, thanks to you, GB, who is uh, our section editor for tuberculosis Uh, who handles a lot of the papers that are coming out. Just at the very end, a more personal question, knowing your involvement in the WHIO and the probably your personal involvement with the World Tuberculosis Day, how, how would you personally rate the importance of this day? Um, this day is, is globally very important. I would say more important in uh, developing countries than in low incidence. So at the time I was working in Africa, and there were um, really um, big celebrations done around this day, celebrated in schools, etc. And there was a real reason to make a lot of advocacy, explaining, uh, making health education to the population in the squares, all the classes, the students who were there uh, making uh, a special event. In low incidence countries, it's a bit less, uh, let's say, felt as, as, as important. But really, it's useful for, for advocacy in, in order to keep attention to a problem that sometimes in our Europe, etc., is considered uh, not a priority. So it's a good opportunity to, to keep things going. This year, there is a lot of focus on the um, political commitment to pursue tuberculosis uh, elimination. And uh, this comes from the fact that in, uh, in the uh, fall, Last year, there was a very historical uh, governmental meeting in Stockholm with the presence of the majority of the Minister of Health of all countries in the world with an important Moscow declaration stating the principles for TB elimination. And this is uh, important to say that if you work together, we can go far and really eliminate the disease. Thank you, GP. And uh, of course, the European Respiratory Journal is committed to publishing the best signs in tuberculosis Uh, as we just heard. So this is the end of our podcast. Again, Dr. Martin Kohl, Chief Editor of the European Respiratory Journal, having asked uh, Chibi Migliori from Tradate in Italy a few questions 
about the tuberculosis paper highlights of the last year. Thank you very much for listening and goodbye.